Folks, this is a great review that I just love about Fun Parts. And because it's kind of fun to do, I want to read it in my Fun Parts After Dark voice. Hey there, listeners. This is a review titled, Thank You, All Caps, Five Stars. This podcast is pivotal in the total deconstruction and reconstruction of faith. It gives so many enlightening and thought-provoking ideas and scenarios that help you to discern your way through years. I'm talking years of misinformation. <laughs> oh, that's such a great review. Thank you. you, whoever got, this person is. Thank you, Maria Rachel Smith. <laughs> Maria Rochelle Smith. Sorry for reading your voice in a very sultry Randy accent. Voice. And Randy. But really, you guys help us help you <laughs> help us by leaving a review anywhere you listen to this podcast that'd be great <laughs> okay steve go ahead it's almost like it's like perfect it god's is. like god's here guys yeah. in the he, drain. she's in the same drain <laughs> From Milieu Media Group, this is Fun Parts, an exploration of sexuality and spirituality. For anyone who's curious or convinced, there must be more. With your hosts, Latifa Alatas, Ashley Lusick, Steve Weens, Luke Bronner, and me, Becky Patton. Fun Parts! So we left off last episode kind of discussing the pillar God is good. And that is kind of loaded for me, Becky. That feels complex for me sometimes. And I would love to hear more about how you arrived at that first pillar. You know, one of the things that the word good, it's a four-letter word. And when I ask people what good means, so often we have a hard time defining it. And I think that's actually really true. So I could say things like, you know, lunch was good. But it, there's not a context that we have it in. So for me, when I say God is good, I want to say that's something I've grown into. Mm-hmm. Even when I first started doing some deconstruction of my theology, and what I was finding was uh, what I saw in Genesis, because I couldn't make it past Genesis 1 and 2, because that was where the good stuff was, and there, wasn't all, there weren't all these things that what I want to call kind of messed up theology or different things that were for me. So in Genesis 1, one of the things I kept seeing all through the story was, and God separated the land from the earth, and this is good, and God saw that made the heavens and the earth, this is good. And I was like, why do they keep repeating this? And so when you see something that's repeated, for me, what it did is it heightened my curiosity, and I started exploring what is really good. And it was in doing some studies in a more Socratic way with a rabbi that I started to understand that that word actually has a depth of meaning that we don't even understand. And it's a three-letter word in Hebrew, which is tov, T-O-V. But the reality is it has this huge depth that is much deeper than we've ever, than I had experienced. And so what, it was a term I had to grow into that God is good. So Steve, can you kind of... Nerdy 30. Nerdy 30. (laughs) Nerdy 30. Well, the first 
part of creation that could be envisioned as visible is day three. And it says that vegetation sprouts up from the ground. And then it has this weird detail that seems like, why would you even include this? But it says that the vegetation that sprouts from the ground has seeds embedded within it. And the rabbis understand that because that's the first like physical act of creation that you could see that's called good, that this idea of good means it has inherent generativity within it, that good, just like a plant containing seed within it, will recreate itself, will drop that seed into the ground as a part of what it is and who it is. And that will create more vegetation that will sprout up. And that's how life will move and grow. So when creation is called good, including humans, this idea of tov is that we are inherently generative. We inherently carry life within us. And when we go about our business being human and being good, tov, not by doing anything necessarily, but by being essentially who we are, we essentially drop seeds of future life all around us. And that's the understanding of God that is both generative and expansive, but also how human beings reflect God in that goodness, that when we are being most like God, we are creating life around us. Is there anything significant about human beings being called very good? Well, it's a poem, right? So this seven-day creation account is a poem. And the first creation account, and there are two. Yes, The second are. one is even more beautiful, in my opinion. That's so important to understand. They're two totally different accounts of how creation comes about, but is a poem. So when it ends with humanity being very good, it's like just an exclamation point. If you think artistically, how would you end with a flourish, you know? And I think, you know, some people call that that's why humans should dominate creation. And I don't see it like that at all. I just see it as a kind of penultimate or culminating goodness that it's especially good, but I don't think you have to put it over and against creation. Can you share about Elijah when he was little and he came to you? Yeah. So a great example of this word tov or good. So my son, Elijah, he's four years old. He comes to me holding an acorn in his hand and he looks at me and he says, dad, this is an oak tree. And he got it. Like, that's the understanding of Tove as goodness, meaning the seed of, has dropped and it's gonna, he could see potential. So, the idea of Tove is essentially the potential of life, which exists within all creation to create more life. So, when you're talking about Tove, are you literally talking about procreation, like people making babies? Because that's challenging for me when I think about people that can't procreate or people that don't have options to procreate. Like, can you, can you be more specific about that? Cause I could see how somebody could jump to the conclusion. Sure. That it's just the basis of actually dropping seed and then mm -hmm. that turning into like physical human, more life or more trees or. No, it's actually, I mean, that could be included in the very, very broad umbrella of Tove, mm -hmm. but it's more like when you were talking in the last episode, Latifa about hospitality and those mm -hmm. moments where you felt especially loved by your gay friends after mm -hmm. your divorce, mm -hmm. actually that's Tove. So they had the potential of creating life within them and they offered it to you via that hospitality. And that connected with something in you mm. that something sprouted to life in you. So it's that broad, it's that generative. Mm. And, you know, again, uh, fertility in terms of 
actually creating embryos is a very small, small piece cool. of, of the big That's picture. helpful. Yeah. That's yeah. I'm glad you asked that. Well, and I want to say that part of what you, when you were talking last time, you were talking about that they brought you something that was from within them. Right. Correct. And it came from ways in which they had felt maybe fringed. Yeah, they had suffered, they so had they know suffered. how to be with the suffering. Yes. And so yeah. they brought, it was something that had come to life and yeah. then through a very hard place. With the, When you think about seeds, like even an acorn going down into the ground, it has to go through a death process before it goes through a regenerative life process. Mm. So Tove is something that it may not actually be easy, and I don't think God is, I, I can't understand God, but what I do see is at the core, God is good, continually recreating life, continually taking things that feel like death. It's resurrection. Yeah. It's resurrection over yeah. and over again, but continually going to that place. So when I say I'm using that as a foundation, as one of the pillars, the reality is, is at the core, when I look at everything I've been through, even I remember one time somebody saying to me, and this was early on in my healing process, she looked at me and she says, God let you be sexually abused because he knew no. you'd be able to stand no. it. You'd be able to handle it no. and you would make good out of it. And I looked at her and I just said, sorry, I'm going to swear. I said, fuck you. And there was that moment for me where I looked and I said, if that's God, I'm out. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But me what, too. But what I want to say is I don't think God let that. I think God wept with me. Right. God wept for me. God wept for my abuser too. And that was a distinction I had to come and wrestle with at some point. That wow. Wait, how can a God like love me and see me in pain and also see the pain of the person who's causing the pain. Mm -hmm. And that I don't understand. I will never understand. Mm -hmm. But I want to say, I can say now this side of the healing work that I've done, has there been good that has come from my abuse? I can say yes, but I'm using the word good in that there was a lot of death. There was a lot of pain. There was a lot of darkness. And from that, it was a place where I found God with me. Yeah. And new life has come from that. It makes me honestly think about the word reincarnation. Yeah. Almost mm -hmm. more than resurrection. Mm -hmm. Because it feels is it reincarnative? Is that an actual word? I think it is now. Yeah. You can make it up. But the idea that it's constantly cycles of death and resurrection to me is the idea of reincarnation. Not the idea of I'm turning into a butterfly or a frog if I'm good or bad, but the idea that continuous cycles of mm -hmm. death and life and death and life. It's just, and it came to that's me. where I'm saying God is good. God is with that whole process mm -hmm. of the seed in the hand, like Elijah did, or that element of it growing on the tree, and then it has to drop off. It, that's a process. It's not an end product. Well, and there's a lot of purpose. Mm -hmm. Like what I see is purpose in every phase mm -hmm. in order to inform the next phase. It also makes me think of reincarnation. Yeah. <laughs> well, or the seasons feel like yeah, that too, yeah. right? No one, well, yeah. God caused the trees to die and drop their leaves. Yeah. No, actually, they're reincarnated right into. Another thing I think I, I want to say is like, even within the Christian Orthodox tradition, there's something called the Paschal Mystery. And mm. the church that I go to, we recite it every week before the Eucharist or during the Eucharist. We say, this is the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. And you can look at that as, like historical events that happen once and what we're waiting mm -hmm. for, or the pattern that you just described. That's the Paschal mystery is the mm -hmm. pattern of, and Christ represents the fullest, most complete human being that ever was. And so what Christ has gone through, we will 
go through in cycles. That's that's what I believe is actually the truest, most orthodox understanding of that idea. The only thing that's complex about the sentence you just said to me is that if Christ is a fullest human being and Christ was a man, I could see how that could be weaponized oh, against okay. women. Well, listen to this then. Sure, okay? I'm hearing you. So Jesus was a man. That's right. Christ is not Jesus's last name. Thank you, so, Father Richard Rohr. Well, but that book, The Universal Christ, yep. is so helpful. It is. The Christ is not a man, is not a human. I agree. Is the Christ energy. The cosmic energy. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful definition. Yeah. For- so let's talk about cosmic energy light coming together between two human beings. Hey, girl. Let's bring it back to sex. That sounds gentle. <laughs> I like that. I love bringing everything, everything Can't back wait, to everything, sex. Can't wait, everything, because everything comes back to sex. And that's why we're friends. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, but I, yeah, th- yeah, I just yeah. think it's, yeah, it's, but part of what we need to define is what is, when I say God is good, or when we're talking about that, what does that actually mean? Mm-hmm. So the element that I think here that was kind of a second phase for me around this topic, when I actually started to recognize and embrace that good of God was relationships I was in mm-hmm. that helped me to see the difference of God in one another and the differences between like my male friends or and just I'm married to a man. And so the reality is the differences in our relationship. And I started to recognize that if I was created in God's image and that is good, then my husband's created in God's image and that is good. And man, we don't see the world the same way, nor do we experience even like our sexuality the same way. And so that's where good had to hold the goodness of the seeds of regenerative or recarnation, whatever you want to call it, in the sense of it held that for both of us as a man and a woman. So, I mean, because that's my actual experience. Mm -hmm. Most of my experience with sex has been with just him. I have been married 40 years. So anyway, one of the things that I talked about in last episode is that moment that intersected where I felt my experience of pleasure was connected to something that God had created. And when I realized that the one body part that a woman has, and here, is it okay if I use explicit language? Let's go there. You know, I'm not trying to offend people, but I need to know what part it is. It's the clitoris. Oh, I knew it. Yeah. <laughs> Can we have like a, maybe one of the jingles will just be like a genitalia warning? Like, yes, yes. Yeah. But I think that it was recognizing in my own body, the structure of my body had been created with the intention of me experiencing pleasure without that part of me having any other function in my body. And it brought into question, wait a minute, did God like know this? Or did God go, oops, kind of got a little overzealous there. Um, I'll just kind of pretend I didn't do that. And that for me, it, it, created in me this thing is, wait, but God's intentional with everything God does. That's what scripture tells us over and over again. And so for me, there was this intentionality with which God had created my physicalness and my genitalia. And I couldn't deny that that was good. I mean, because the reality is, is that feels good and it repeatedly feels good. And there's this element of if I'm get, I can't separate myself from God now, well, I can't separate my body from God. And so that's where, for me, the goodness and the mystery of the body began to take shape in a different way, mm. where I started to go, oh, wait a minute, just because I don't experience sex like my husband experiences sex doesn't mean that that's bad. 
And I think sometimes that's what we think the opposite of good is, is bad. And when we think of good as regenerative possibility of creating more, I would say the opposite of that is when we shut down Mm. the possibility of creating anymore. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. And that's what in scripture, the word raw means to cut off or it's evil. It can be translated as evil, but it's just like it means to cut it off. And so it's like... No more life. No more life. Mm -hmm. I have to recognize that's where my foundational view of God is so important because is God actively, intentionally a part of how I'm created as a human being? So really... It sounds like your gateway drug to the good God was understanding that your clitoris only had one purpose, and that's to bring you pleasure. And if God created you that way, then God must be good. That's literally, that sounds, absolutely makes me sound really, really simple. But yes, it was like this introduction. My body was experiencing something, and I was deconstructing who God was. So I was outside the construct of the church. And you know where I was actually sitting when I actually realized it? This is so funny now that I think about this. I was at Lake Calhoun, Greek Orthodox Church, the parking lot. Mm -hmm. They're having their Greek festival. And I'm <laughs> sitting on the ground with a glass of wine in my hand and I'm pregnant. Opa! Uh, yeah, I know. And I'm sitting there and I'm realizing I'm sitting on one of those little ramps for like where the car drives up and stops right there. And I'm sitting there because I'm so tired and it's sweating. And I was like, my body's good. <laughs> like, I'm good. Like, God intentionally made me to experience pleasure. So I got to figure this out. I got to figure this out. And it brought more questions to me than answers, but it became foundational for me. And it's so interesting. It was at a Greek Orthodox church. I mean, when I think about that That's now, really wild. it was a Greek Orthodox church sitting up on this hill, and it was a festival where everybody, I mean, they know how to party. They sure do. It was fun. Mm -hmm. So in that moment, or in, I guess the journey that you embarked on starting at that moment, what happened with all of the shame that you carried before around mm -hmm. your body? It got revealed for what wow. it was, is shame. And I had a name for it then. It was like, like I remember one time, and I want to say anything that I share about my husband and I, I have his permission yeah. We've been really careful about that. And I, yeah, so I just want to say that. But there was a moment when we were making love and I realized there was someone else in the room with me. And it was shame. Mm. And I started to kind of acknowledge that I had a relationship with shame. And my therapist helped me do this too, is to be able to recognize that shame isn't the enemy shames the trigger that's helping tell me, and this is my language I have now, that there's something here that needs to be redeemed. Could you, mm. if you're comfortable, mm -hmm. specifics are so helpful for me. So like when you say shame is in the room for me, shame is being revealed in my body, what does that actually look like? What were the things you were hearing yourself say to yourself or you're saying to your body? Like, is it like, my my body's bad or I shouldn't orgasm or like, I mean, I'm just curious. Well, one of the first places I actually had language around it because I was nursing my daughter. Mm -hmm. It was the middle of the night. And so new mom, maybe she's six weeks old. I mean, there's no pattern whatsoever. And so I am sleep deprived. I go into her room and it is a moonlit night. The moon is shining in. I sit down in this little rocker and I get ready to nurse her. And I literally 
as I pull my breast out and put it into her mouth. I heard this gentle whisper in my heart. It was like, are you going to feed her from hate or love? And the thing I hated the most about my body were my breasts. Wow. And I mean, I like hated them because I'd been, I, I'm small-breasted, and I had been raised with, I knew all the jokes. I knew all the commentary. I had literally um, learned to adopt that more than a handful is a waste, but I felt shame around that statement also. And here I'm watching my swelled breast feed and nurture my little daughter. And I wept. I'm sitting there crying. And I'm like, dang, I don't want to feed her from hate. Was it sleep deprived? Was that God? It was gentle. It was kind. It was not judgmental. It was a question. And I was too sleep deprived. And I knew it wasn't me. I knew something was calling my heart and sometimes we need to be sleep deprived to actually recognize that and I went and crawled back in bed and I remember pressing my body against my husband he's sound asleep and I just really literally began a prayer I said can you teach me how to love my body and mm-hmm. we need to start with my breasts and so every time I nursed my daughter I began practicing these breasts are beautiful they're pain I mean I didn't feel it but I began to notice the goodness of what they were providing and I started to have a different relationship with my breasts and that was the beginning point and I had other I mean I'm now almost 60 and so the reality is I have to continue in that conversation and engagement because there are things that drop Mm -hmm. and there's gravity and there's your body begins to change and I'm finding it a continued adventure that I have to choose to engage with. So. I feel like one of the things for me that I have learned is not just like how I feel about my physical form, but how my body, I have a relationship with my body. I almost feel like my body has its own consciousness and I'm in relationship with it and it's communicating with me. So I feel like for me, reconnecting, reintegrating with the relationship with my body is acknowledging that there is a relationship there and that my body actively communicates with me. I think it's how God communicates with me through the form that was made Mm -hmm. that houses my soul, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I have this poem I wrote called My Body is a Spacesuit and it carries soul cargo. (laughs) It's really dope. (laughs) I should read it. It's good. Um, But like, we could think of bodies as just like skin that contains goo, you know, but it's so much more than that. Like I, and I, what I realized is the shame that I've carried exiting a marriage and then like reintegrating with myself after that is that like I shut down how my body communicated with me. My body was like screaming the truth at me in situations that were not healing for me. And I was shutting down those messages from my body and almost shaming it, saying, you don't know, and said, this is true. Like what I've been taught about marriage or sex within marriage, like this is what's true. So I'll cling to that when my body was saying something different. And now I've had to do a lot of work. And the shame I've experienced has been about not listening mm-hmm. to my body. 
but it's listed under or couched under. And I want to say this yeah. is part of spiritual Help bypassing me. is yeah. deny the flesh. Exactly. Because we were told flesh is evil. And mm-hmm. so like, of course I am a woman and I can look in the mirror and say like, oh, I wish I had like a little less chub there and a little more chub over here. And like, you know, like mm-hmm. um, that's all kind of just like normal stuff we have to work through. But I, me going like another layer deep of how am I communicating with my body? How have I listened? How have I affirmed? Mm-hmm. Because what I'm learning is that my body has always told me the truth. Yeah. My body champions. Your body won't lie. Yeah, my body and champions the truth because when I'm living that, like in response to truthfulness, I'm more peaceful. I'm more at ease. My back hurts less. You know, all these mm-hmm. things. And so I was curious about the specific messages for you too because I feel like I learn mm-hmm. through other people's stories. Can I ask either one of you a question? Yeah. Is there shame for you around sexual desire? There used to be. Okay. Not anymore. Okay. Not and at how, all now. Okay. Yeah. So, because I know, I mean, again, mm-hmm. pastor working in the church, mm-hmm. still women, I think men too, but in a different way, you know, that grew up in that culture, but feel shame around desire. So I feel like if I have more desire than my husband for sex, then something's really, really wrong with me. Or how did you move through that? You know, it's interesting. I think I had to build a relationship with desire. And I want to say through remembering mm-hmm. and within my own body, a lot of what you're talking about, um, mindfulness, I think we're kind of, and this is the thing that I think is so fascinating about the body is so mysteriously and unbelievably made when we really start to look at it. And we can look at it as just a physical vessel. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, desire is just something that flows through me. Or we can look at it as this incredibly integrated part of being human and spiritual and we're created in God's image. So we're, we carry this mystery and all this, and there's something like intoxicatingly erotic in that. Mm -hmm. And so I had to begin by rebuilding a relationship with desire and noticing the desire in everyday life. Like, why do I want that second helping of ice cream (laughs) and noticing what was driving my desire? And sometimes what was driving my desire was like when my kids were little, I remember this moment when I'm in the car and they're just, one's crying and the other's doing this. And I yelled the word, shut up, everybody, shut up. And I realized, oh, not appropriate as a parent. Okay, not good. And this was one of those moments I went, oh, I'm actually desiring quiet. Mm -hmm. My soul is hungry for quiet. I have two kids that are very active. So instead I said, okay, resume. And I got out of the car and I stood outside the car where it was just quiet, left my children. They were safe, but I left mm-hmm. the children in the car and my soul needed something. And my body was telling me I needed it. So it was erupting. It was erupting. Desire yeah. for silence was erupting inside of me to the point I was pushing it down, pushing it down, pushing yeah. it down. And I think our re- most of our relationship with desire and listening to our body is about trying to control something versus listening. I imagine little T, little Tifa, very curly hair probably between the six and nine-year-old age. I'm not exactly sure when, but I remember uh, watching a movie called Three Men and a Baby featuring Mm. a young Tom Selleck. (laughs) Okay, that's, yeah. (laughs) And this is answering your question. And I was lounging over the arm of the sofa, like belly down. Mm -hmm. And there's this like scene where Tom Selleck like chases after the love interest who's like the mother of this child who like in essence sort of abandoned him (laughs) or her. And they're like, connecting and it's just like a kiss it's not even like that sexual but like i remember something awakening in my nether regions against the sofa oh it's on it's a sofa house jam yeah it's on it's a sofa on house 
to the Genesis narrative of, you know, there's all of this really poor theology out there, yes. mm -hmm. really misogynist theology out there mm -hmm. about women essentially being to blame. Well, yeah, because I, how many times have I heard a pastor say like, boy, yo, yoing, Eve is made and man is like, whoa, whoa, man. Whoa, man. Which so is like, stupid. and that's not what it says. Yeah, it's help not me what it understand. says. Help me. Okay. It, I, I, <laughs> um, the, this, this is part of what frustrates me about the element and the narrative that we created in Genesis is it says this, is the first time we actually see gender show up in scripture is it says, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from man. So the first gender, like gender definition that we see in scripture is actually woman. It's not man. So that verse I've normally heard preached like this. Whoa, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken from and a she's man. Mine for and consumption. she's mine right. because I, she was taken out of me. She's mine and I want her back. And so it becomes this incredible ownership mm. verse versus awe and wonder. Now, I want to say in that narrative, what I think is trying to be shown is wonder. And like, wow. I mean, like, I remember the first time, somebody reminded me of this last night. Do you remember the first time you showed your daughter snowflakes falling on her skin? And she says, that has stuck with me for so long. I was mm -hmm. like, look, see those? Look at it. And now you can touch it and you can push it away. And oh, you can gather them together. And I remember just recently showing my grandson rain. He'd never been in rain before. And I took him out and he's like, at first kind of like <laughs> this, he's like, he can't like quite figure it out. And then he started to get into the joy of it. And it was wonder. And I have a picture of him standing mm -hmm. out in the rain going <gasps> like this. And he's just like absorbing the beauty of it. Wow. And that's what I think is actually happening. When you experience something for the first time, you experience the wonder of it. You don't move to the lust of it. But that's how that first man mm -hmm. is described, I think, so often. And the woman is the one who, because she's standing opposite, she's created it. But if you look in that verse, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken from the man. The man's not talking to the woman. Well, who else is present? God. God. The man's talking to the creator in a way that goes, wow, this is... She was taken, this was, what? He's going to a source to help understand something that he's never seen before. And I think that is a better interpretation of that verse because anytime any of us experience something for the first time, there's an awe and wonder with it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there is an awe and wonder and we have to re, like that's childlike versus childish. Well, that's what I was thinking about as you were talking. I think there's a way in which if we understand whatever the Adam and Eve story is, metaphor, literal, yeah. whatever, as children, because this is pre-sin, and so the vulnerability and innocence, if we understand them as children, I think we get a better picture of what's happening there. And it's like, oh my, this is someone that looks like me, feels like me, but I can tell isn't me. Now it's going to be us. And I even think it's not, this is not about marriage. This is not no, setting up marriage. I don't think it is either. This is setting up community for the friendship. first time. Friendship. And a partnership of equals that 
is different and mm -hmm. but carries similarities, you know? Why do we assume that it's a man lusting after a woman? Because we sexualize everything, of course. We've sexualized mm. it because people are possibly telling it from their own experience. For sure. So God is good as a pillar. God's goodness is about helping us to take off, shed, let go of things that we no longer need. And I use this quote quite often, but my theology used to be written in ink. And now mm. my theology is written in pencil. Mm. Now, I want to say... God's love for me, I think, is etched into my being. Wow. But my theology is written in pencil because there are so many things I need to relearn, rethink, and re-engage with from a different perspective. And I love that, Steve, about thinking of the first man and the first woman in that narrative, whatever it is. And we, I mean, I think there's so much theology around that. But part of it is there was an innocence and a childlikeness in them, and they were with God. I'm also just thinking about when you're talking about your theology and pencil and like thinking about guiding light as you mm -hmm. move, like thinking about Tov and Ra. Mm -hmm. So Tov being regenerative life and Ra being like death, like mm -hmm. no regeneration. It's almost like I want to keep chasing down the things that are Tov mm -hmm. and I want to move past the things that are raw. Like I'll mm -hmm. experience raw. And oh, then, we and, will. Yeah, and then I say, okay, I'm going to, I'm not going to keep, Going down that empty well, mm -hmm. I'm going to keep being pointed in the direction of things that are tove, yeah. things that are regenerative. Like that feels like a good compass for navigating. Why do I believe what I believe, and like mm -hmm. how how am I arriving there? Yeah, I agree 100%, Latifa. And I would even say to your point of like, ooh, the Bible, you know, right? Whatever. And I think even better than well, does the Bible say it? Mm. Is that principle you just shared? Yeah, because God is certainly not fully contained within the Bible. God's goodness exists apart from the Bible. Yeah. You don't, you know, and so I think, and that makes maybe certain people nervous. I get that. But the reason why I say it is because if just the Bible says it, I can make the Bible say whatever I want it to say. That's right. We all can. <laughs> but I think over the course of time, you can learn to trust that intuition of yeah. what is tov, what is generative, mm -hmm. and what isn't. I mean, over the course of time, you get a sense for this direction mm -hmm. is going to cut off life and this direction is going to bring life. And so I'm going to go after the life. And I think our bodies reveal those things to us too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The yep. way our bodies respond. But we ha there has to be a rebirth. A re yeah. we, need to, we need to pick up that acorn seed and remember mm -hmm. how to listen to our bodies. Yes. It's like there really literally is, is oh, my body actually has everything it needs. And that's why I keep saying everything we need to heal is already inside of us. Yeah. We've already experienced true vulnerability. We've already experienced true neediness. We've already experienced love. We've already experienced those things because we experienced them in a helpless manner of coming into this world, needing love, needing care. And some of us didn't get really good care. And some of us didn't get really good examples of that, but it doesn't mean we didn't come in with a purity of need, a purity of vulnerability. We mm. came in with it and then in so many ways, it got damaged, destroyed, raw. And it doesn't mean we don't still carry the tove of that in us. This episode of Fun Parts was produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork was designed by the very talented Alan Lusink. 
Nerdy 30, PDA, and Couch Jam were composed and produced by Latifa Alatas, and other music from this episode is from the fine folks at Blue Dot Sessions. Check out our website at funpartspodcast.com and be sure to follow us on social media at funpartspodcast. Lastly, if you want access to bonus and behind-the-scenes content from this and other Milieu Media Group shows, join our neighborhood at the Patreon link in the show notes. And now, here's a scene from the next episode of Fun Parts. Part of my experience with you has been when I've heard you speak, I think like, man, I would love to be that free, but there's no way I could ever get there because I am so far from being able to talk as comfortably as you do but it just seems like such an impossibly long journey, especially at 40 years old. I'm like, oh, there's just no time for me to ever sort of reach that place, which you would think that that would mean the logic is, but I'll, I'll see how far I can go. But it's not. In my mind, it's like, I can't engage in this conversation because I'm never going to get there. So like, I'll just stay where I am. But I'm trying to not do that. So I'm ready-ish. <laughs>